Hello there and once again welcome to the Broadcast Preview Podcast. Callum Williams here alongside my partners in football as always. Uh, Mrs. Minnesota Soccer, Kindra D. St. Aubin joins us. And uh, as always, I will defy you, I challenge you to find a man who can dive as well as the next guest. Jamie Watson also joins us here. Uh, guys, how are we? Good afternoon. Wonderful I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm, <laughs> he comes in with that, and we come know, in and bring it right on down, don't You've we? you got all the energy, and I'm like, I'm ready for a nap. How many cups of coffee are you on right now, pal? Uh, several. Um, but I've got a cup of tea here. Kendra's got a water. Jamie's got his smile. Let's get on with the podcast, shall we? Um, <laughs> let's start with uh, the one place where we can only really start, and it is the Lamar Hunt US Open Cup final, uh, which Kendra Minnesota United fell at the final hurdle uh, at Atlanta United on Tuesday evening. What did you take from what we saw in Atlanta? I really felt like it was the tale of two halves. I think Minnesota United redeemed themselves in the second half, and, and it's not that they put a poor effort out there in the first half. It was just the fact that Atlanta came out flying. I mean, they are a, a team to contend with. I mean, how how do you com- how do you how do you keep that pressure off of you if you're Minnesota United? We're not just talking about offense. We're talking about defensively, the front four, the front six of Atlanta United, putting such an immense amount of pressure on your midfield and your back line that you can't even get out with possession to get into the half and the offensive third of the field. So I thought, you know, tail of two halves, the way that started off, 90 seconds in, going a goal down, called for offside, but even 2 nothing at the half. You're wondering what's Minnesota going to come out like in the second half. And an absolute fantastic performance from an effort standpoint for me, for Minnesota United to go into that environment in the final, in the U.S. Open Cup final against that team, down to nothing at the half, and really make it a game in the second half. And it was fun to watch. It was fun to be a part of. Of course, you want to come out on the winning end, but at least I think Minnesota United has got to be proud of the effort that they put forth and the fact that they're in the Open Cup final in year number three, the way the first two years kind of went about and the mm. fact that, you know, it's taken this long to build this club to where it is. Uh, Jeremy Watson, despite the result, there does seem to be an element of pride with Minnesota United. Quite rightly so as well. Yeah, as there should be. Um, I, I think that Adrian said it best after the game. He said Minnesota United dug themselves uh, too big of a hole to come out of. And when you go down 2-0, 16 minutes in, every city's been stadium, there's not a lot of teams that come back from that uh, that kind of a start at halftime I said it to you uh, on score north when we were talking about the first half I was like hey let's also keep in mind Minnesota United went down 2-0 at Houston and were able to battle back and make it 3-2 and, and advance on to get to this point earlier in the tournament and even you the eternal optimist I know in football that always thinks until the final whistle goes everybody's a chance I think your reaction still was yeah, but this is a little bit different of a challenge, isn't it? <laughs> and I think everyone had that overwhelming feel except for the players in the locker room. And whatever Adrian Heath said, whatever words he dialed up, obviously seemed to resonate with the group because then 65 seconds into the second half, they go and get the game's <laughs> game-changing goal because uh, I think, candidly, we spoke about it afterwards um, with some of the, the the coaching staff, and they said, look, you know, we knew that goal was going to be huge. 2-0 is not a spot you want to be in, but if it goes three, that's uh, that's a that's a massive mountain, isn't it? But if it goes two one, now the perspectives change. Second half, they started eliminating the mistakes they made. They stopped doing uh, silly turnovers, giving away the ball cheaply in bad spots. That was their real big Achilles heel in the first half. And Atlanta were coming in waves. A lot of movement from that front six that they have, and um, it was pretty unstoppable for the first twenty minutes. 
then they kind of got a foothold of the game and and battled their way back in. A couple of close opportunities. Boxel misses a header in the first half. Ike has a chance uh, that misses by maybe a foot off of another set piece. And goal makes a 2-1. Then they start getting chances. And even before Gonzalez Perez has four minutes of a meltdown or three minutes of a, a meltdown, they were on the ascendancy. Then that final 15 minutes, look, if Minnesota United scores and they make it 2-2 and the game goes to extra time, and someone says to us three, you have to put a thousand bucks of your own money on how this game goes. I know where I'm putting my money. It's mm-hmm. squarely on Minnesota United, and that's the only one. And I'm sitting there going, let me start counting my money of how much I'm going to win this bet. You know, because that's how confident you felt. Fortunately, they just never got the equalizer. And had they played maybe five more minutes, maybe they would have gotten another one. Mm. Um, but wasn't to be. And, uh, you know, congrats to Atlanta United. They they navigated a, a difficult side of the tournament as well to get there, and they'll be a, a very good representative for Major League Soccer in the CONCACAF Champions League. The one thing which is obvious to say here, Kendra, and I think it's okay to say it, Atlanta United are just far superior than Minnesota United, but also an array of other teams in Major League Soccer as well. It's okay to say that we lost to the better team. Oh, 100%. And that's how I felt after the match. It was just that you felt like at the end there, there was nearly the opportunity. And we can look at Boxel's chance late, but I mean, ultimately he shouldn't feel, he's going to feel bad about it, but there were plenty of other chances. Chase Gasper had a half volley. You know, there were other the other times, but yes, Atlanta United was the better team on the day. And I would say if you go position by position down the line, and you said, would you take their player or our player, their player or our player? You know, if you went back and forth, and it doesn't mean on every day everybody's going to be the same, but I would think the overarching theme for me is that Atlanta United is is the superior, is the better team talent-wise. Talent doesn't always win, but it won on that night. And and overall, I think that, you know, they're, they're better than a lot of teams. That's why they're sitting back atop the East after the abysmal start they had, after losing their absolute stud of a player, Miguel Marone. Like, they are still sitting atop the East, and, and people were wondering if they were going to get back there, and they found a way. And, you know, Minnesota is on the ascendancy as well, and they've made some fantastic, you know, roster additions. They've been very busy, and it's a work in progress. It's still a work in progress, and I think Minnesota should be proud of, of what they accomplished. They should be and particularly with the second half performance as well, Jeremy, I feel like Minnesota United matched Atlanta United in just about every avenue. They really did. And and like I said, eliminating the, the simple errors in midfield were the biggest thing, but but also too, Chase Gasper and Roma Metzner started getting much more advanced. And in the first half, I think there was a subconscious mindset that set in because there were so many turnovers that they stopped going as high as they normally do because there were so many turnovers, it's human nature when you're on the field that if you're playing that outside back role, and, and I did it for a very short period of my career, it was very short-lived. Um, <laughs> but having said that, I, I get that mentality of an outside back where you, if you go a couple of times and you make you take the chance, you make the 30, 40-yard run, and then the ball gets turned over, you've then got to run 30, 40 yards back to get in that spot. And then the extra 34 yards or 30, 40 yards, the other team's going towards goal. So when your team's losing it consistently, you start thinking, I'm not going to put myself in this spot where I expend the energy to get forward. We lose it. Then I've got to go all the way back and then do it again. So they set it home maybe a little bit more than what we're used to seeing both Metzenaire and Gasper. Then in the second half, they started getting higher. The team kept a little bit more possession. The possession ended 50-50 on the night. Um, 
it, it allowed for Minnesota United to get those guys more involved. It was more reminiscent of what we're used to seeing. That's why more chances were created. And then, of course, the last 15 minutes, they were up a player as well, and Atlanta's just defending a lead. So those will skew the you know percentages a, a little bit. But I think even before Gonzalez Perez got sent off, you started seeing that Minnesota United were the better team in the half. They just weren't able to get the second goal. The wingbacks as well, Kendra, for Atlanta United also caused the Minnesota United uh, fullbacks uh, issues, not out about it, with, with Gressel and Miram being as, as active and as aggressive as they were for Atlanta United. It, it really caused the likes of Gaspar and Metinair issues. Well, and it's a different... I mean, we've dealt with a lot of outside backs that get forward and get on the attack on the season, but having the wing backs like they are in the three center back position with the 3-5-2, I mean, the, but the Achilles heel for every team that's played at Lane United all season long has been, in particular, Julian Gressel, because he's been so good for so long since he's come into the league, rookie of the year, um, you know, one of the top in assists. I think he was fifth in the league in assists coming into this into that game. And then Miram kind of taking on a new position that I don't think I heard Dunny, Brian Dunn to say it the other night, if who would have said at this point in his career, you'd be calling Justin Miram a left wing back. But he's taken it on fantastically. And how many times this year have we talked about whoever wins the outside back or the outside wing back battle first, gets on the front first, whether it's Minnesota United or the opposition, is going to have the front foot of the game because you are then forcing your outside backs to stay home and not do what they do best. And I think that's what we ran into once again, but this time, Roma Metinair, Chase Gasper, the, that that task is so tough. I mean, Chase Gasper, a couple times, he didn't make the run forward, and then Molino or somebody centrally would try to, like, dink a little ball through, and Chase is just like, I can't do it. Mm. You know what I mean? Because you can only make that run so many times. It's exhausting. They're trying to be on the same page and exert that kind of energy. But, yeah, I mean, Miriam and Gressel, um, I think the service from Gressel was maybe limited a little bit more than we've seen in other, in other games, but still just the energy and the pace and – and them getting into the attack causes problems for the outside backs from Minnesota. One other thing for me, sorry, Cal, to just jump on that. The way Atlanta plays, I don't think Justin Merriman is a great wing back, mm -hmm. but because they keep possession so well and there's mm -hmm. so much movement, yep. anybody is a better player when you're getting two-on-ones, and that's all they created. He Merriman had fantastic positioning. Um, he was so far wide on the, on the second goal. Kevin Molina wasn't able to cut off that passing lane and then he was able to go one-on-one. -on -one. And then, then he got to that comfortable position where he feels he's so far up the field that he starts out as a mm -hmm. wing back. But when you keep possession like that, as, an, yeah. as a wing back, you're able to go 30 yards forward into a familiar territory. And so it's like they get to hide an extra attacking player on the field in that system with both Gressel and mm -hmm. Miram. That's, mm -hmm. that's part of the beauty of what Atlanta United could do and how their possession influences the game. Well, and I think credit to Pogba, too, sitting in behind him. I mean, I, I mean, he's really stepped in nicely and done really well and allows Merrim to get higher up the field. He was fantastic he on was the night. Really good. He was really good on the night. Before we uh, move on, then, let's just um, put a point of emphasis on, on the actual cup run itself. Because I think when Minnesota United started this Open Cup adventure, they had come off the back of a defeat to Colorado Rapids. And, and you look into the future and you see Sporting Kansas City at Allianz Field and you're thinking, ooh, uh, not sure about this, despite the frailties of Sporting KC. And they demolished Sporting KC 4-1. Then they go to Houston Dynamo. And again, especially when Minnesota went 2-0 down, you're thinking against, at the time, the current Open Cup champions, you're thinking, okay, this is probably the end of our cup run. That's okay because we'll focus our attention on the playoffs. Then they come back and win. Mm -hmm. Then New Mexico United mm -hmm. 
are exposed as the the next challengers for Minnesota at Allianz Field. And I don't know about you, Kendra, but I feel that is when it really became a possibility. And that is when it really started to resonate with not only people in the front office, but fans around Major League Soccer that perhaps Minnesota United can make a run at this thing. Well, I don't think it was just Minnesota United coming away with the victory against New Mexico. It was also the fact of the you, they came back against Houston on the road. They beat Kansas City, who... They never seem to beat anywhere, and especially in the U.S. Open Cup. And then the fact that they went down early to New Mexico, early in that match. And I think there was an absolute, like, the air was taken out of the stadium when that goal was scored. But then Minnesota jumped right back on the front foot and hammered it home and crushed him. You know, so I think that those were all things. I'm a huge believer in Uncle Mo and momentum. And the fact that they had the confidence to come, you know, come from behind against KC, even though it was at home, or I'm sorry, come from behind against Houston and then beat KC. Those are two factors that they just continued to ride high. It went right into New Mexico, and I think the rest of the league started to take notice. And I think that's the tricky thing about U.S. Open Cup is everybody wants to go far. Everybody wants to get to the final. Everybody, But once you're out of it, you're kind of like, okay, let's refocus. You know, of course you still want to be in it, but once you're out of it, you're like, okay, well— out of U.S. Open Cup, but we've really got a shot at these playoffs. Let's refocus back on the MLS season. Easy to say that when you're not in it for the run, but I think Minnesota United absolutely stayed focused. And once they passed New Mexico, it was like we're getting we're, we can get this thing. We can go all the way, and and they did that. Apart from uh, going off the back of that, apart from the team aspect, if you dive a little deeper into the weeds as far as players. And how this impacted players? Mason. Mason Toy. Imagine if Minnesota United doesn't come back in that game, or say they give up a third goal in Houston, and they're not able to come back and get the result. He doesn't get the 89th minute winner there. Mm -hmm. Then that doesn't spark the confidence to go and get his, uh, his start in Montreal, where he scores two goals there. Then he doesn't have the magnificent run off the shoulder against Portland in the semifinals to get the game's, goal, game's uh, winning goal there and uh, midway through the second half. Where would Mason Toy's career be if there wasn't this run? We've seen the development, but development and practice is one thing. Having that come to fruition in games and having that development be executed in a 90-minute ma competitive match is completely different. And this kid ends up with four goals in the tournament, I believe, second overall in the tournament to, to Darwin, who wins Golden Boot in the, in the entire competition. Um, by the start of the tournament, he's scoring his first goal in that matchup against Houston. And by the semifinal, Charlie Davies is making the comment after he scores, Greg Berhalter, are you watching? Hmm. It's remarkable to think what that goal in Houston may have done for Mason Kerr to, to be the start of that. Is that where the domino first started falling? And then the rest of the tournament. But then also, too, Chase Gasper was still just kind of breaking into the tournament, got the start in Houston at left back, started against Kansas City, did really well. Asani Dotson, again, you know, emerged throughout the tournament and put more consistent performances in. Without these games, without these types of moments, these players' careers may not be the couple of steps further along that they are. And if you're Mason Toy, let's say Minnesota United doesn't come back against Houston, he doesn't score there. Now he's at a year and a half where he hasn't, he hasn't got his first competitive goal yet. You're out of the Open Cup tournament, hypothetically speaking. D 
Does he get the faith to get those starts? Is Adrian Heath rotating as much because there's not the Open Cup games keeping in mind? Does all the chips start to fall in place to where they are now? Maybe, maybe not, but if you start to think without that first moment to really start to give him the faith of the coach, maybe his growth hasn't reached the spot it's at now to where he's on the radar of, you know, the U23s and of the national team. It's crazy to think just what this could really do for several players in their careers this run, apart from also the club being now able to say they've been a part of a major final, you know, in just their third year. Yep, it's going to be very interesting to see uh, how Mason Toy does over the course of the next uh, couple of weeks. And um, I think it's uh, safe to say it's going to be intriguing to see uh, just how Minnesota United do with seven games remaining in the regular season. Okay, let's move on, shall we? And we'll talk about all things Major League Soccer. Uh, Since we last did one of these, um, there have been some hirings and firings in the world of Major League Soccer. We spoke about it back in June, Kindra. And finally, now, after what seems to be the world's worst kept secret, Robin Frazier confirmed as the new manager of Colorado Rapids. Um, How much can we realistically expect Short term with six, seven games remaining, what should we expect in 2020 from the Rapids? I think it was interesting, though, because if you read some of the players' reaction for Toronto, the the fact that he was hired for Colorado, it was like, wow, that was fast. That came out of nowhere. And I'm like, really? What do you live under a rock? Yeah. Like, was it, is this a joke? You know, but I do think one of the biggest thing is, is, is when you listen to a lot of the or you read a lot of the articles about the conversations that he's had or the, the, the players talk about him when he's not present in the room is all high praise. Not just for him as a player, but I mean, as a former player and how he kind of transitioned that into an assistant coach. So I'm excited to see what he can do for Colorado. And it's a place that he is familiar with ultimately. And I think that's that helps. Um, But it's a tough task. I mean, and, and everybody looks at these coaches when they get hired and like it's all on these coaches. But it's it's a it's a combination because what is he walking into? The players, his or not his, it's kind of like James O'Connor in Orlando City. I mean, look at the uphill battle that he's had to have and what he came into when he first took that job. And you're just, it, you're, you're not just coming in and taking the team and seeing what you can do with them. So I would love to see good things from from him in in that role and in, in Colorado because I think that's a, a soccer culture and it's a soccer city. And we've been to Colorado, I don't know, several times, and I just can't believe how empty the stands are and. You know, they've got, you know, quite the academy system, not a ton of success with it yet, but a number of teams underneath that, you know, you hear Marcelo Balboa talk about all the time and and his role with Colorado in the academy. So you'd like to see it just as a whole, the soccer culture and the club get turned around there. I think he can be a massive piece of it. I think he'll be great for the job. And if he can get the players ear early and they can feel like they can be on the right path, then, then it's all good. If they believe in what he's selling, then it's all good. And if they start winning, well, then everybody believes what you're selling. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think winning is the biggest key. The weird thing about me is that Colorado wasn't, you know, the the basement dwellers, in my opinion, not necessarily from results, but from what they looked like on the field and their belief and their energy the last, you know, few weeks that it was prior in the season, earlier, before they fired Hudson. And then now, you know, he'll come in there and hopefully continue to to right the ship. But um, yeah, worst kept secret, I think. And well, one of there's quite a few when it comes to hirings and firings in Major League Soccer. And we'll get to one of the surprising ones uh, next up with Montreal. But I think ultimately, I think he he can get this team on the right track if the players, you know, buy what he's selling and they start and they continue to to win games and find results. And he comes to Colorado, Jay, with with a good resume. His last full-time coaching job as a first-team coach was several years ago managing Chivas USA 
on a limited budget where he did quite well. Since then, and the move to Colorado, he's been the assistant manager at New York Red Bulls, where he did well. And then, more notably, at Toronto FC, where obviously, as the assistant manager to Greg Vanney, they won MLS Cup in 2017. The one thing which, which you hope for Robin Frazier's sake, that the Rapids do, is give him time. Anthony Hudson came in with, with what seemed to be spearheading a completely new project that seemed to be backed um, very aggressively by uh, the owners uh, and the, the shoots at Colorado Rapids, and he barely lasted 18 months. You have to hope, you would assume, that given the, the chase for Robin Frazier, that Colorado Rapids and the hierarchy would give him a couple of years at the very least. You hope so, right? Because it, at the rate at which in the time that they were patient waiting for whatever needed to fall into place, you know, if that was a, enough losses in a row or enough bad performances in a row for Connor Casey to then that they could make that change. Um, Cause we were talking about this back to late May, early June, that this was the reports and the whispers and whatnot. So um, now here we are at the end of August and it finally comes out now and the decision finally goes through. So if this is the guy that you wanted for several months and you finally got him, then you need to make sure you say, okay, we're, we're all in for this because you're also inheriting a roster in which Another person came in and said, this is my envision of a project. These are my players for it. And Robin Frazier, he may not be buying what Anthony Hudson was selling. Right. But the way this league is structured, you can't just sit there and just go, right, everyone's contract, just rip it up like a piece of paper and then we're done. Some of those have to play out. Some of those are guaranteed. Some of those are mechanisms in which you can't get enough value in return. You're stuck on it. You've got to have, you know, a squad and stuff like that. So it'll take time and, and transfer windows to – ultimately get a real Robin Fraser team. But this is a guy with over 350 appearances in his career as a player and has been a manager now for, you know, what, over a decade. So this is actually a guy that, you know, was an assistant in Salt Lake when I was there. That's how long ago he's oh, been coaching. Right. So yeah. back in 07. So um, this is a guy that understands culture in the locker room. And uh, I saw his first uh, speech to the team. And the first thing he says is there's there's really no – overriding rules the, the governing body in which we're going to operate on is respect now that's enough leash to get yourself in trouble with and you can roam too far with that and then ultimately he may say okay we're just gonna you know see, we're gonna let you be able to dictate how you fall into place within the locker room and i think that's really important because once you get the locker room right you know these things can sometimes rot from the inside out and if he can get the right people in, the right players in, the right talent in, not miss on as many players as what they had done previously at the Rapids, he can certainly change this around. There's there's good pieces to the puzzle there. It's just going to be interesting to see when he gets to the offseason which players from this team stick around to next year because right now it's just seven games for him to evaluate. It's seven games, but it's also about two months of practices and getting to know people that the players in the locker room are really on this long tryout right now with Robin Fraser to see if they fit into the core of what he wants going forward. Mm -hmm. The other change in the Major League Soccer managerial world saw Remy Gards let go by Montreal Impact, and I think that was a surprise to just about everybody in Major League Soccer. Even more so, Wilma Cabrera was appointed as the manager, at least for the time being. So, Kendra, I'll ask you what your thoughts are on this, because... When I saw the, the press conference, 
Wilma Cabrera, and, and perhaps I'm reading too much into the body language here, but Wilma Cabrera didn't exactly look thrilled to be there at that particular stage. And, and there was a journalist that asked a question whether or not Wilma Cabrera was serving as the full-time manager or the interim manager. And Montreal Impact and their representatives didn't exactly say he's not. I think the answer was something along the lines of, we're all interim, aren't we really, in this crazy... <laughs> what a response. What we're a politician. Is that right? Political response. Is that right? And, and, and so I guess the question I have for you now, bearing in mind that response, do we expect Wilma Cabrera to be at Montreal Impact for the long term, is, is or is this an audition period for him? Well, I kind of would like to know what the heck he signed when he just went there. I mean, <laughs> did he sign a contract that goes through 2020? Did he sign something that goes through 2021? Like, I have no idea. Yes, we're all technically interim, right? And we screw up enough, we can all be fired at any time, regardless of what your contract says. But ultimately, I mean, was it the chicken or the egg with hiring Wilmer Cabrera in Montreal? Would, would they have fired Remy Gard if Wilmer Cabrera had not become available? I'm so confused about this because was like that just the thing they were waiting for Wilmer to Cabrera to become available and <laughs> then they had to make <laughs> the move before anybody else had to snatch him up <laughs> so they had to fire Remy Guard right then. I mean, that's what I was like blown away by. Wasn't shocked that Wilmer Cabrera got fired. Not even in crazy. I mean, Montreal's in a, in a playoff position right now. They're above the line. But I think we thought maybe he could have been fired after last year. Right. And he wasn't kind of like, or at least I did. Mm. And then maybe even like in Chicago, we were a little surprised that, you know, they brought what's his toes back, Ponovich back, yes. you know? So I don't know. I mean, but yeah, to fire Remy guard at this time. And then all of a sudden two days later, you don't just promote somebody from within to take over as an interim until the rest of the year, you go out and get Wilmer Cabrera, who was just fired from Houston. It's all kind of a mess in my mind. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, when Paul Tenorio doesn't know what's going on and he's shocked <laughs> by something, that everybody doesn't know what's going on. That's my thought on it. Can I uh, can I switch gears a little bit, Cal? I know you're the one that always transitions. Because cool. um, there's nothing more that I could say that what Kendra said. <laughs> she nailed it completely. Uh, Poor nailed it on the head. Yeah, exactly. A um, little bit of Friday news dump here um, as we're recording this Friday mid-afternoon here. It's the uh, U.S. under-23 roster was just announced ah, and, and and do tell us who is on that u23 roster then jeremy shall we take a guess at uh, who it is i think you're about to tell us well it is mason toy mm -hmm. and hasani dotson hasani dotson Good for Good. Him. incredible so we obviously had no idea we were in the dark of that the uh the the twitter world is blowing up now awesome. with the news and Good for this is pretty exciting, huh? Yeah, this Good. is great. So this we just awesome. talked about, you know, how the course of the season, the Open Cup changes everything, and these two have been called up to a 24-player roster um, amongst a bunch of MLS players uh, that will convene on September 9th in Chula Vista. Uh, Toy and Dotson will join the team at Chula Vista Elite Training Center following Minnesota United's game against LAFC. So pretty exciting there. Good for them. Great news for them. Not great news uh, for Minnesota United as they have a game <laughs> in Houston on September 11th, but this is all in preparation uh, to try to get to qualifying for the Olympics, Olympics, which are in uh, Tokyo next year. Mm. So exciting. Look at that. And, and this is something, uh, Jeremy, that, that you thought would happen, particularly for, for Mason Toy, 
Uh, I remember you on one of our broadcasts on Fox Sports North had suggested that you expected this to happen. Uh, and now Jason Christ has a real chance to take a look at not only Mason Toy, but Hassani Dotson. You, you've been in the U23 camp before. What's going to be going through their mindset now, bearing in mind this will be the first time that they've played at this sort of level before? Yeah, I mean, Cal, we've talked about this several times, but I think this is a huge, huge moment um, because I think now even more so the U23s have a lot more eyes within U.S. soccer on them because of the failed qualification for the Olympics previously. And, you know, having uh, spoke with some people within U.S. soccer while we were at the Open Cup, uh, we were talking about uh, the potential for the 23s and who might be called up and, you know, who might be taking place and, and what the weird timing of the, the qualifying is, you know, next spring for the Summer Olympics, um, that it's not a guarantee anymore that, that the under-23s qualify for it. So with that, there is a lot of meticulous planning and preparation. This isn't a camp in which you can just call in guys to be like, yeah, okay, like you've shown glimpses of, of good things. Let's bring you in. No, you've got to get this group ready to go so that they can be ready to qualify for the Olympics because it's inexcusable now for the 23s to not get called in or to not make the, to not make the Olympics excuse right. me. So I think that um, this shows a real show of faith from Jason Christ in Mason Toy, but also Asani Dotson who you can't make an argument to me otherwise that he's not the rookie of the year in major league soccer. And the best overall soccer player had, you know, three incredible goals uh, to his name so far in the season. Um, uh, it's the best player. And I think now he gets a chance to do it on an international stage. And if he does really well at the international stage in these friendlies, um, you know, I think it'll be really important. Um, a, sh a chance for them to showcase themselves against Japan on uh, September 9th. Kendra, thoughts? I think it's fantastic for both of them. I mean, I think that we, you know, the discussion was out there a little bit about Mason Toy, and Jamie had mentioned it, I don't know, quite a while ago about him being in the possible discussion or should he be looked at even before that running U.S. Open Cup that he had. And But for Hassani Dotson, I think he's just one of those guys that has always flown under the radar. And you get these guys that get picked in the second or third rounds, whatever it might be, of any draft professionally in any sport and maybe a little bit of a chip on the shoulder or something to prove. And Hassani has gone about everything the right way. He hasn't acted like he has a chip on his shoulder, like, I'm out here to prove you wrong. He's never said that. Like, he was slighted. I mean, he came from Oregon State and not not a super well-known soccer hotbed for, for men's soccer. And he just goes about everything the right way. And he's he's solid. He's smart. He's consistent. And he's good on top of all of it. So, I mean, I'm I'm happy for him. I think he's a great kid. And I think um, Mason Toy, hopefully he goes out there and, do, you know, does what, what we know he's capable of mm. and what he's been doing this season um, and, and gets right back on that horse and does, does it with the 23s. Mm. Intriguing stuff. So Hassani Dotson and Mason Toy off uh, to play for the USA under-23s. We'll keep our eyes peeled on that. Let's move from the U-23s uh, to the full senior men's roster, shall we? And uh, some intriguing names on the roster uh, moving forward for the games against Mexico and Uruguay. Uh, I'll just rattle a couple of them here, which uh, you may not have heard of before. Uh, so, um, Serginho Dest uh, coming in from Ajax. 
uh, young defender, which I think we'll, we may very well see at some stage. Uh, one that I'm really intrigued to see, uh, we saw him on Tuesday for Atlanta United and Miles Robinson, who's yet to earn a cap mm. uh, for the national team. Uh, Paxton Pomichal as well for FC Dallas. Obviously, we've seen him already this season. It wouldn't surprise me at all if he was to earn his first senior team cap against either Mexico or Uruguay. Uh, Kindred St. Auburn, give me your, your overall thoughts and what you're expecting to see against these two opponents. Honestly, the biggest thing for me for the men's national team, regardless of who Berhalter is bringing in on a camp-to-camp basis, because we all know it depends on who's available, who's not, and, and we touched on it briefly before our podcast about you know, not bringing in the TFC players yes. because they're in the midst of a playoff run. And is that the real reason or are you giving younger guys the look, guys that maybe you don't know yet? And he's kind of using both things, you know, leaving a Josie Altidore off the list. I just want to see what this men's national team is going to do and what they're working towards. What is the end goal as a, as a unit, as a club? I mean, as a club, as a country. And I think the 23s now is a big part of that. Maybe people used to discount, maybe discount isn't the right word, but... I just think that there has there's a plan that Burhalter is going about with this process. And it's not just about who's available and who's not because of international duty or because of, you know, their their countries and or whatever clubs are playing for overseas internationally. I think it's literally a process in his mind of an end goal. The problem is it's gonna come fast. It's gonna come fast where all of a sudden you're having to qualify for the next World Cup. So you may think you have all the time in the world to sort this out and sort the roster out and who you wanna bring in and who you wanna leave off and maybe who's too old and you wanna bring the new guys in, but also you wanna have that veteran leadership. All of a sudden it's gonna come fast and furious and I think Berhalter is gonna go with some trusted names, some trusted bodies and some trusted players and then keep auditioning some of these younger guys that maybe nobody's heard of and maybe once they step on that stage, they will be heard of. And I, I just, I like the process. I think this is the time when you should be doing that. And it's not just about who's available and who's not. It's about literally trying to figure out who might be the new blood that you're pumping in. And the women's national team went through something very similar, mm. even after the 2015 World Cup. And even going into it with Abby, you know, all of a sudden she found herself on the bench instead of a starting role. Carly Lloyd has had to take that yes. on. So I think the men's team, it's just, it's going to be a process. And you've got a new coach in there trying to mix things up. It's going, to be, it's going to be a challenge. Mm. And we'll talk about the women here shortly as well because let's not forget they do play at Allianz Field next week against Portugal. Um, a, a sprinkling of, of new names there, Jamie. And I, I don't mean to go negative um, with this next conversation, but I'm interested to get your thoughts, um, having represented the national team at various levels. Um, it was reported during the week that Darlington Nagby had turned down the opportunity to play for the national team, not once, but several times. Now, I know everybody's, um, everybody has a different scenario, personally and professionally. What did you think when you heard that he turned down caps for the national team and may have even turned down opportunities at the Gold Cup? Yeah, first of all, Kendrick, really good take on the national team because I think that is a good point that there is this experimentation, but you... At some point, you've got to go, right, what are the findings and results of this? And we've got to start in implementing this now um, because you can't just say, okay, this is we've experimented for two years and two and a half years, and now qualifying starts, and here we go. Let's throw all this group out together because this is what we decided. No, you've got to figure out your group sooner right. rather than later. So when a guy like Darlington Nagby, who's been in, been out, found the form again that had him in, gets the opportunity again, you're right. Uh, this comes full disclaimer. We don't know the full details correct, of correct. it all. And, and if it's hundred percent true, if there are sprinklings of truth in there with uh, some inconsistencies and, and whatnot, but okay, now that we've got that out of the way, 
there are very few people and very few instances in which I think it's okay to turn down a national team call-up. Where he is now with his spot solidified with Atlanta United, he's going to play in there um, whenever he is fit and healthy. His name's on the team sheet and pen. He's not fighting for a place in his team. He's not fighting to establish himself in Europe you know, or under a new coach. DeBoer is a new coach, but he's established in this country, and, and he's he, in MLS standards, he's he is established. You can't turn this down because right now where we are with the country and how many emerging players there are, if Darlington Nagby turns this down, and this is the camp in which Paxton, Hall comes in and does really, really well, hey, guess what? Mm-hmm. Maybe this is the foot in the door Hall needs to where now Nagby, it's you don't get the opportunity to turn it down because there isn't an offer. And he's not solidified enough with this group and hasn't done enough at the international stage to say, I can pick and choose when I want to represent the country. Of course, going back to the disclaimer, I don't know, and I don't want to come off as heartless to find out there's some terrible personal reason going on as to why he's done it, you know, and said, no, but if this is, if, 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 if this comes into the hypothetical discussion that everything's all well and good, He's not in a spot to. And there are very few people that are in a spot to turn down call-ups. And with things changing now and, and, and a new identity being born within the national team, you have to take every camp, every opportunity that you get, and you've got to make the most of it. Because this experimentation that Kendra was just talking about brilliantly a minute ago is going to experiment with somebody new. And if they come in and take that opportunity and really impress and really stake their claim to take the spot, the opportunity may not come back around. And you, I'd be the last thing you want to do is have regret that, man, I missed my opportunity with the national team during my career because I turned down a call-up. The only thing I hope is that he's already thought that through. That you could be wallet pipped. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying, it, I, and again, we don't know what's going on in his personal life, but I hope that he has thought it through that, like, if these young studs that he continues to pull in and have been dominant in the 20s, like a Paxton Pomacall, and done really well for FC Dallas, that if he turns down that chance, there's a very good chance that one of those guys will come in and perform really well, and you will not be called back. You will not be asked back again. I hope he's thought of that. And maybe I'm giving him too much credit, but I hope he has thought Surely of that. Surely you have to. Surely somebody in your camp, an agent, a friend, so. and, and maybe, um, and he's, maybe coach, he's okay, GM. And maybe he's okay with that. I mean, I have no clue, but I but, hope but that that's the, thing, the case. Then, then I'll go, if if he has done that, let's, let's keep going on that, because if he has done that, then do you want him in camp if you're Greg Berhalter knowing that this camp he does want to be in the next one he may not want to be in you know what I mean like now we're now we're spiraling it without all the facts but that's what this is for is to be fun and to spark conversation and that's what we do is as football pundits but if he has thought of it do I want to call him back in next time and if you're Greg Berhalter and be like okay now do you want to play for me this is the U.S. men's national team look at Landon Donovan with Jurgen Klinsman yeah remember when he's like I'm taking a year off and, and guess what? You're going to get back said, in. Okay. Yeah. yeah, screw you. Yeah. Yeah. You think you should be a part of the World Cup? Yep. So does everybody else. Well, guess what? I don't think that. Right. So you're out. Yep. And now Greg Berhalter is obviously a different person. Has, yeah, is a different personality type and hopefully yep. has a better line of communication yep. with Darlington Agme. And hopefully there's there's so much that goes on behind yep. the scenes of what we get to actually see and what yes. gets put out. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, if it's me, there are very few circumstances in my life that are going on, and they would be things that supersede soccer. 
like the birth of my child. Something's sure. going on family-wise that mm-hmm. is bigger than soccer. But there is not one soccer reason that would be bigger than me playing for my, my national team. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is the thing as well. We we hesitate to react on, on what is purely reports and speculation. We, we don't often do that. But I was just curious to, to get your thoughts, really. But we, we must say that we don't know all the details. Mm-hmm. And one thing, working for a couple of different football clubs uh, during my time, one thing I have learned is that a lot of the time, you don't yep. usually know the full story unless you are very, very involved with that club. Right, so. and, if, and if, if it comes out that there was another reason for it, I'd be the first one to go, Yep. right decision. Fair enough. That's why there's the absolute need to put a disclaimer on that, but then again, let's also give a take. Yes. Let's mm-hmm. give an angle on it. If, if all things are well and good, then that's my take, and if things are another way and they're not all well and good, well, then I would have a completely different take. Correct. We'll wait and see. Let's move on to the women, shall we? Um, Kendra, they were fabulous against Portugal uh, in Philadelphia, thumping them by four goals to nil. I thought Carly Lloyd took her goal very, very well to make it 3-0. But as we mentioned earlier on, they're again playing Portugal here at Allianz Fields uh, next week. Uh, You must be very excited to see the world champions here in Minnesota. I'm excited to see them in person, you know, after all this time and not being able to really ever do a U.S. Women's National Team game. It's it's fun to see them. I get to go as a fan. But I think it's, for me, it's also not just about seeing them and coming here and about this victory tour for them. And, of course, another victory tour well-deserved after, you know, two straight World Cup victories. But um, for me, it's about them also repping at Allianz Field. I think that if you would have asked at clearly at the end of 2015, but even prior to that, the last time the women's national team was here where they played in like in a soccer stadium, I went to a game at NSC when it was a stadium, when I was like 12, they were here, but that was Mia Hamm. That was Julie Foudy. That was, you know, Christine Lilly. That was that whole crew. So I think what it means for the community here too is going to be awesome. I just can't wait to see it. I mean, you know, I have so much family that's, soccer loving men's women's and girls boys whatever and otherwise and everybody's so excited about it but i think you know they they didn't even have their all the, all their stars last night i don't know how we define stars anymore on this women's national team because you can just about pull in anybody of the top 40 probably on their list and get the job done and i don't know if they'll all be here on tuesday um reporting some injuries and whatnot but I'm excited to see him in person. I think they do a really good job with the fans and on these victory tours because they know how important it is and and repping the country and repping themselves. So it'll be awesome. They look good last night. Carly Lloyd, every time she steps on the field, she's got a point to prove, Mm. you know, kind of like sticking it to the woman in this case, not the man about why you're not starting me. Why am I not playing with Jill Ellis? And let's not forget, that's another coach who's stepping down after the victory tour. Mm. That's a huge, huge role to fill after you've just won back-to-back World Cup titles, if you're Jill Ellis and you're U.S. soccer, and Kate Margraff taking over the the search kind of for that role. So it'll be interesting to see how it all unfolds. But I can't wait till Tuesday. I can't wait till Monday to the open practice. Yes. We get back from California, from LAFC, hopefully off a victory. We're all riding high on that red eye, <laughs> landing at 6, 5 a.m. Oh boy, not yeah. Cal. Not <laughs> yeah. Cal and Jamie and I. Yep. <laughs> red eye. And then we can go straight into Labor Day and to uh, the open practice and then the, the women's game on Tuesday. It's going to be very, very good. Really, really looking forward to, to the chance to see the world champions uh, who have got just about everything. But you know what you haven't got? <laughs> what? You haven't got the UEFA Player of the Year, Lucy <laughs> that's Bronx. That's true. How awesome was that, though? <laughs> it was fabulous. I mean, that's well-deserved. Yeah, she has been uh, my favourite player for some time. Yeah. And uh, great to see that her efforts have gone rewarded. Yeah. Uh, I must admit, I, I, I had hoped that she would win it. 
um, and all indications were pointing towards that happening. Yeah. Uh, but I was uh, sitting there yesterday watching the, the UEFA ceremony, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Champions League draw and the, the UEFA Males and then Females Player of the Year awards and uh, thought it was fantastic. And look, we don't win a lot in England. So <laughs> I was just delighted that we have the UEFA Player of the well, Year. Well, you still have Brexit. Oh, let's not get into that. <laughs> Certainly not I'm not sure you want on that one either. <laughs> let's move I thought you didn't think I was going there. No, I didn't. Let's move on swiftly, shall we? Um, right. <laughs> to as far away from Brexit as we can go, and Los Angeles, Minnesota United, go up against table-topping LAFC. Um, Jeremy Watson, I don't think you could have asked for a more difficult task straight after falling in the Open Cup final. No, you can't. And you're going to play in maybe the best team uh, ever assembled in Major League Soccer, a team that's nine points shy of tying the all-time record uh, point total in Major League Soccer with seven games to play. <laughs> you got to think that they're going to be, hopefully, <laughs> they, they, you got to, I mean, your odds on favor that they're going to they're gonna smash that record. Um, look, it's difficult. But LA Galaxy just went into the Bank of California Stadium. They got a point out of there. I, I think you got to call a spade a spade here. Any result you can get, any points you can walk out of there with, you take and you you hightail it back to Minnesota and, and get ready for to go again for the rest of the season because it's a difficult place to play. And, you know, they haven't lost all season at Bank of California Stadium in Major League Soccer play. So it's a, a tough task. But I do think playing Atlanta United actually will help prepare Minnesota United for the way LAFC play. A lot of movement from the attacking front, three up top. Um, you know, it's nice to uh, to know that there's not just one team in Major League Soccer that's got a $30 million front like Atlanta, and mm-hmm. then you get to go play the other team that's got a $30 million front three um, in LAFC. And so, look, it, I think you'll see a lot of similarities. There is a slight difference tactically of how they play as opposed to Atlanta United, but I think having just had that fresh in the back of your mind of the movement and the ability of the, the attacking trio with the supporting cast underneath, it's eerily similar to what you just saw with Atlanta. So maybe having the games back to back keeps that tactical thought process still in mind and you're able to kind of go, right. Okay. Now we know how dangerous wide players can be up front. How do we defend this? You're kind of the game prep is not, one end of the spectrum to the other. So maybe that does help Minnesota United timing-wise. Um, and then also, too, you just hope the fact that LAFC is already, you know, clinched and they're already in the playoffs. And, you know, maybe you just hope Carlos Vela's hammy just needs a little bit more time <laughs> to get better. And, you know, maybe maybe they have a different mindset and they, they look to rotate the squad a little bit. And maybe you catch them on the day and you get points from the, from the game. But... Call a spade a spade. You walk away with anything from that place. Much like any other road game, you're happy with it. Yeah. Uh, first of all, before we move on, we've done it again. We've reached 45 minutes, still with plenty to talk about. Um, <laughs> we're never going to break this duck, are we? Um, Kindra, uh, Jamie mentioned it there. Carlos Vela. Um, there are insinuations that his hamstring is um, a little bit sore, and he may very well be rested for this particular game, which obviously works well in Minnesota United's favour. But... It's not like LAFC is short of bodies to replace him. I think Minnesota United is going to have a tough task, and Carlos Vela is fantastic. I mean, I think that anybody in this country that watches Major League Soccer, you cannot help but set your timer and set your TV, set your record button to when LAFC is going to be playing just 
because you want to see what he is going to do on the night. He is so fun to watch. And he's another one of those players that is by far and away in the category of great, not just good. And if, you know, I could go above great for him clearly, but when you know what a player is going to do and they still find a way to get it done, you know, he's going to cut it on that left, foot. you know, he's going to curl it into the far post around the keeper and around whoever, and he still finds a way to do it. And those are the kind of players that are fun to watch. I think everybody might be a little bit sad that he's not on the Mexico national team because they'd like to see what he could do there minus against the United States. But I love watching him with LAFC. I think the front three has found their groove. I think Diamande is starting to click. I mean, let's not forget about Diego, Diego Rossi, but then you've got Atuesta who's coming to his own mark. Anthony K. I mean, the numbers, Latif Blessing, totally revived in a new life on this roster and in his position, not, not even talking about their back line. So I'm excited to see this LAFC team. Carlos Vela is so fun to watch. He's fantastic. And Minnesota United have a massive task, a massive task. We just got done saying this against Atlanta United for similar yet different reasons, but a massive task as well, because now you're going to the other side of the country. You just go, got home on Wednesday at two, three, four in the morning, whatever time they went to bed you're maybe dealing with some injuries, with some soreness, with some stiffness, and now you're traveling across the country the other direction and trying to do the same thing against the top of the West, who are just cruising. And you have to wonder, Bob Bradley doesn't strike me as the type that's going to take the foot off the pedal. Right. Just a, just a hunch. They've clinched a playoff position, but they still want to clinch the top in the West. They still want to get the supporter shield, and they're going to cruise into hopefully the postseason in their minds. But you just have to hope. Bella, Hammy. Rest it just a little bit, just, just a little one bit. day, because we also don't know with Minnesota United who's going to be available, who's not. International duty. We're talking about all these games coming up, so it's going to be a tough one. But um, a point on the road is what Minnesota should be not aiming for. That's not the right word, but uh, we've always said a point on the road. You content get a draw with, on the road. Yeah. Yes, satisfied with. with. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And, and knowing their schedule, they have the toughest remaining schedule of the seven games in the entire league. Mm-hmm. It does not get any easier. So. This is where Ozzy Alonso, Ike Apart, and just that veteran leadership, Vito Manone, yeah. is going to come in handy down the stretch. I wonder if we'll see Brian Rodriguez for yes. LAFC. Yes, making his I forgot first about him. MLS. Yeah, another <laughs> wonderful uh, footballer. And then, of course, as well, I, I wonder if Latif Blessing is given the option to push forward. And, oh, by the way, you replace him in the central midfield with someone like Lee Wing. You know, the <laughs> roster for LAFC is spectacular. Uh, so before we go, uh, Jamie, talk to me about... Minnesota United and and their perspective heading into this game. Uh, do we expect to see any sort of tactical shift? How do you deal with LAFC? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I think you have to take into account how good they are and how dangerous they are with the three that they play up front and then the runs that come from midfield position. So, um, yeah, I think that it is important to make sure that you account for those wide players. And having seen that with Atlanta, I think that maybe there'll be a there might be a shift a little bit that could um, lend itself to saying, right, how do we close those guys down from getting time and space running at us with speed? Cause that's where the second goal for Atlanta came, you know, came from was that exact uh, movement. And so I think that Minnesota United might try to balance that or counteract that a little bit um, and then look to, to break out uh, against that on the counterattack. And I think that's the recipe for success. Look what LA galaxy did. They weathered the storm at times, looked to break out fast against them, and they didn't have a guy with the speed of Mason Toy. They had Zlatan, who, mind you, is a completely different player and a completely different animal of a, of a species. You know what I mean? This guy is just a he, – he's not normal. Um, but the way that Minnesota United can game plan is hopefully use Mason Toy's speed to get him behind. 
Zlatan, it just took a little bit of time to get the whole group up, and he wanted to get across to the back post. So um, there is a blueprint for it if you watch that game. You know, LA Galaxy were up 3-1 at one point, right? So there is a way you can go in there. They're not completely vulnerable, and I think their kryptonite is weathering a storm and breaking out against them. And I think that's what Minnesota United maybe are going to look to try to do to get something from the game. You can view it as an advantage, but also a disadvantage, Kendra, the fact that Minnesota were playing LAFC on the Sunday. But at the very least, they will at least have some sort of a pathway and a picture in front of them, giving them an idea as to what they have to do to continue to be involved in the postseason race. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, Adrian Heath is going to continue to say it's next game, next yeah. matchup. And and everybody knows that every single opponent that they have down the stretch, and fortunately for Minnesota United, they get LAFC twice <laughs> to wrap up the season. But one of those at Allianz Field. Yes, one of those at Allianz Field, which is the great which equalizer. Is, is the great equal. <laughs> and who knows that what, but anyways, I mean, you got Portland on the road, you got Seattle on the road, you've got Houston, you've got to take points from that game. You've got to take points at Houston right now. I mean, that is, as far as road games go, that's got to be it. But I think that um, ultimately Adrian Heath and this entire club and seven games left in the regular season, I can't believe we're saying that because it just has, it's dragged on and flown by at the same time. So um, they'll have a blueprint. They'll know what they need to do. You know, maybe LAFC will or will not have clenched the top spot in the West after, after Sunday's match. We'll see. And now you're getting, now we're starting to get these emails that say this, this if this team tie win, you know, this team <laughs> does this team, this can team Vancouver can be eliminated. This team can be eliminated. So we're getting to that point in the season now where everybody is scoreboard and schedule watching. And I love that the West is so tight. That's what makes it. That's what makes this league entertaining. So it's going to be a fun run on Sunday and uh, dying to get your guys' predictions. <laughs> you don't sound so excited. Um, do you want to do one with Carlos Vela and one without? <laughs> <laughs> no, because, look, whilst Vela is obviously, for, for me, the best player in the league, yeah. I still think, regardless, LAFC have an array of talent that, that will cause Minnesota problems. Um, look, I'm going to be completely realistic. I, I think a 3-2 win for LAFC. Mm-hmm but I will happily take a 2-2 two, two tie at Bank of California Stadium. 1-1? One, one? <laughs> you guys believe that? I was going to go 2-2. Two, two. That's what I mean. I think ultimately, I mean, I could see LAFC absolutely, you know, winning this game, but um, I think 2-2 two, two would, be, would be a fair result on both sides. Hopefully it is. Yeah. Well, Hopefully that's a fair result. I mean, if we could hold them to two goals and if we could find a way to score two goals, then I'm saying like that, that, that would be, that fair, would be yeah. a fair result. If it plays out that way, that's, yeah, that's fine. If you can score two there and only concede exactly. two, that, that would, that would normally be fair, right? I'll take <laughs> if it. If we only give up as many as they do, well, I then think, we should tie. I think, that would I think be fair. Capable, I think Minnesota's capable of it. Yeah. After yeah, so what do. they accomplished in Atlanta, at Atlanta against their best of the best holding them to two goals after allowing the two goals in the first half. Tight defensively, break out, yep. get your goal, take exactly. your chances when Actually they come. Actually finish your chance. Actually finish them, yes. <laughs> it's going to be intriguing. And you can watch as Minnesota United go for their 17th win in all competitions this season. Believe me, they'll give it their best go. On Fox Sports North, 9 p.m. on Sunday evening. Of course, you can listen on Score North as well. My thanks to Jeremy Watson, to Kindred e. St. Aubin, and thanks to you for joining us as well. As always, you've been listening to a Minnesota United production.